from verse 3 to verse 7. That's going to be the focus. But I'm going to read from the beginning of this chapter and uh, on a little bit. So this is uh, the Word of God. Titus chapter 3, and I'll read from the beginning uh, of this chapter. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Then into verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Amen. And we praise God uh, for that reading of his holy and his life-giving word. Okay, now we're going to sing once again. We're going to sing a hymn of praise to God. Boys and girls, uh, this is uh, the opportunity you have to go out to Sunday school. Sounds like we've got you captive and there's an opportunity to escape. That's not really what I was getting at. Um, but you can go out to Sunday school when we're singing. So we're going to sing a hymn. Maybe you can sing it as you leave. And it's a hymn called Jesus Paid It All. And then the boys and girls, you can, you can go out to your Sunday school classes uh, just now. So these words, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness. Watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. So friends, let's again, let's rise to sing praise to the Lord Almighty. And boys and girls, you can leave for Sunday school. Uh, together in the uh, Old Testament book of Genesis. So last Sunday morning, uh, our sermon series that had stretched back 
many weeks, indeed many months, that came to an end. So that was last Sunday. Before we launch into anything else, before we launch into another sermon series, what I want us to do over the next few weeks is really just to look at a few individual texts, individual sections uh, from various different parts of the Bible before we launch into another sermon series. And all of that kind of begs a question right now, doesn't it? Because the question you would have, if that's the plan, individual texts, the the question you would have is, well, okay, fine, Andy, why this? Why today are we jumping into the book of Titus from nowhere, jumping into Titus chapter 3? Well, I I, I hope you all come to appreciate and come to see this morning is that this section of scripture really could not be more relevant uh, to our proceedings today in St. Peter's. Um, We have just witnessed a baptism. And come on, let's be honest about it. Uh, If perhaps we don't normally come to church, or let's be really honest, even if we do normally come to church, baptism can be a little bit confusing for us, I think. Sometimes many questions about baptism can arise, and we could be sitting there scratching our heads a little bit and thinking, well, what just happened? What was that really about? What does baptism stand for? What What does it really mean? Uh, Well, fundamentally, what we've just done with Lucy depicts an essential truth of biblical Christianity, namely this, that salvation is possible. So what does baptism convey? It conveys that people can have their greatest need met Baptism conveys that people can be made new, they can be made clean, they can be made right with the one true and loving God. And get this, here in Titus, in that reading that we've just looked at, that is all explained for us. Now I'm going to read you a quote. One writer says this. It's a good quote, I think. He says about this section of Titus, he says, what you've got in your hands is the fullest statement of what salvation really is anywhere in the whole of the New Testament. The fullest explanation of what salvation is anywhere in the New Testament right now in our hands. So do you see how it fits together? Do you see the relevance of this? So what we, you and I, have just been shown in Lucy's baptism, is now here explained for us in theological terms in the book of Titus. This this fits together, should fit together nicely. Could not be any more relevant to our proceedings here at St. Peter's this morning. Titus chapter 3. Okay, but here's the thing. Titus 3 is not a section that just sits there in isolation, is it? Like it sits there as part of a book, Titus. So, so what exactly is this that we're dealing with here? Well, what, what we're dealing with is part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend Titus, uh, this guy who was serving in churches on the island of Crete, okay? And having told Titus about Christian living in the church and Christian living in the home, what Paul turns to do in our section is to instruct him about Christian living in the world. 
So in this, in the depth of the letter, in the middle of the letter, Paul's instructing Titus about Christian living, how Christians should relate to the unbelieving people around them. In fact, maybe you noticed it. Did you notice it in the reading? How sharp were you? So I said, what, three to seven, didn't I? Did you notice either side of that? In verse two and verse eight, Paul exhorts Christians to good works amongst unbelieving people. Verse two, verse eight, both times good works amongst unbelievers. So you see the idea, don't you? But how are they going to do that, right? Like, where does the motivation come from for a Christian to engage with unbelieving people in a sort of gracious and loving way? After all, like the people, the inhabitants of Crete, (laughs) they were were renowned for being cruel. They were renowned for being hostile, right? So where's the motivation going to come from to deal with them well? Well, I wonder maybe you see the logic of what Paul does here. In order to prompt Christians to godly behavior, what does he do? He reminds Christians in our section of God's saving activity in their lives. You can see the logic, can't you? It's like to propel Christians to deal graciously with maybe a hostile, unbelieving person. Paul reminds them, wait a minute, just you consider something of the grace that you have received. And here he unpacks salvation. Okay, what do you think of alliteration and sermons? Uh, I am so conflicted by alliteration and sermons. On one hand, I know it's cheesy. You know, it's like the cheesiest thing since like country music or something. I know it is. On the other hand, I firmly believe it can really, really help us to get our teeth into a portion of Scripture. So sometimes we just, we just have to grin and, and bear it, right? Okay. Well, we're going to go for it this morning because I, I want four A's here. Okay. Very briefly and quickly, concisely, hopefully, four A's. So you've heard of like double A batteries or triple A batteries. Let's go for a quadruple A summary of salvation this morning. Okay. So you know what you've got to do? Certainly if you've been at St. Peter's before, right now, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Titus. So if you've got it on your phone, even if you don't have a Bible app, you can look it up, Titus chapter 3. If you've got a copy of the Bible, have it in front of you. Four A's briefly. First of all, the antecedent for salvation or the precursor, if you don't want A, the precursor to, 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 to salvation. Okay. Right, if we've got it there before us, what do we see? Where do we go with us? Okay, I, I remember years and years ago, I was reading a reference uh, for a potential employee. Okay, maybe some of you have done that. Reading a reference for a, a potential employee. So it was a, in a context entirely uh, different to this. And I was part of a search committee for a vacancy. And so we had done what you would expect us to do, right? So we had asked an former boss to supply a reference for this candidate that we thought looked really promising. So we'd asked for this reference, and I could not believe my eyes as I read this reference. Because if you've ever seen these sorts of things, you know exactly what they tend to be. What do you read? You always read always the same. It's like, 
I would not recommend this candidate highly enough. This person, you know, works well as a team and blah, blah, blah. It's a great person, a great employee, wonderful. Not this time. Not at all. So I was reading this reference and the former boss was not holding back in their criticism of this potential employee. So the list was something else. This person was always late. This person was constantly lazy. This person was uh, regularly insubordinate and so forth. So quite a list and a list that you don't really want to read. Well, as Paul here begins his review of Christian salvation, as he reminds Titus in this letter of what they were before they were changed and transformed, do we not have something like that in front of us? I mean, do, do, do you see it? what emerges here is the most uh, devastating, I think, uh, depiction or description of what the human heart is before any transformation comes to it. Look at, look at it with me in verse 3. I wonder even if we can project verse 3 up on the screen, or you look at it in front of you. Look at this. Now, there's, there's different ways we could divide this, I think, loads of different ways. Just for today's purposes right now, think of it in terms of a relation to God, relation to your own self, and a relation to other people. Look, look at it. What's said in, about our heart in relation to God? Do you notice the terms here? Look at it. Like outside of any work of salvation, man is foolish. So that's the idea of being ignorant of God. So foolish. Then what's the next one? Disobedient. You can see again, it's disobedience to God. And then what's the third one? Do you see? Man is led astray. So that's the idea. In the Greek, behind the text there, that's the idea that if there's no change in the human heart, we live deceived, deceived by by sin. Come on, what do you think? Isn't that bleak? Okay, what about in relation to ourselves? Hopefully it gets a bit brighter. Does it get a bit brighter? Read on. It doesn't, man. Do you notice the metaphor of slavery? Like, do you see it? Like, apart from any work of salvation, man is slave to various, what, passions and pleasures. Does that sound okay to you, actually? Does it? Does it? A slave to pleasure? Does that sound okay? You have to understand, when the Bible talks about that, these things are always put in direct opposition to godliness. Always. Like that is the idea there, that we, by our sinful nature, are in chains to lust, in chains to to wicked desire. So that's in relation to God. That's in relation to ourselves. What about in relation to others? Come on! There has to be. Does there not like some shaft of light here? Is there? Look at it. Look at the two terms. Man, look at them. Malice. Envy. Like, do you see what, what Scripture is saying? God is saying, unless there is a change in the human heart, unless transformation is worked, we are actually a people who despise the success of others. We despise the joy and prospering of other people. And where does that go? 
Come on, where does it lead to? Do you notice where it leads to? There's this then, this reciprocal animosity, isn't it? The reciprocal hostility. We end up, what's this? We end up hated and we end up hating other people. I mean, man alive. I mean, what a diagnosis that is, isn't it? Of, of fallen human condition, of mankind apart from some work, a change or, or salvation. I, I, okay, I know, right, I know uh, time is short. I know, I know I've got to move fast here. I do know this. I want to say one thing, one thing alone about that. I think if we're honest with ourselves, and that's crucial here, if we're honest with ourselves, that diagnosis is actually really difficult to deny. Because you could be new to church, you know, you could be new to coming along and stuff like this, and you could be sitting there thinking, okay, fine, but that sounds exaggerated. That sounds overblown. But if even for a split second you're thinking like that, I would urge you just now to think about, to look at the world around you just now and the situation of the world around you, and I would ask you to look at your own heart. And if you're honest, and if you're really honest with yourself, what do you see? Okay, things are not as bad as they could be. But look around. The world is utterly broken. Look at your own heart. We are broken people. Come on, you only need to spend five minutes on Twitter. Just spend five minutes there to notice man's inclination towards just loathing. So just now, please, I'm asking you, begging you, consider this divine exposure of man's fallen condition. Consider it, and then just feel upon you the need, the need we have of this salvation, this transformation that Paul unpacks for us in Titus chapter 3. So we see the antecedent for salvation. Two, we're going to move quickly. Two, remember, four A's, we're already on the number two. Second, the author of salvation. The antecedent for salvation, the author of salvation. Because as important as this portrayal is of man's fallen condition, it is really important. But as important as it is, that isn't actually where the Apostle Paul wants you to linger just now at all. Do you know what Paul wants you to see? He wants you to see the possibility of change. He wants you to see this morning the availability of utter transformation and salvation. So what have we got here, right? Well, believe it or not, what we've got from verse 4 to verse 7 is one long sentence uh, in, in the Greek, okay? One long, quite complicated sentence from verse 4 to 7. But do you know what that means? That means that what, what we've got in front of us is one central verb. So there is one verb here in this text that stands above everything else. A main verb, and I want you to see what it is. So if you would look at uh, verses 4 and 5, if we can get that on the screen. If you look at verse 5, now, what is this verb? You ready? It's just three words. This is the centerpiece of all that Paul says. You ready for the three words? He saved. 
us. We don't really go in for taglines in the Christian church. We don't really go in for catchphrases, do we? But man, if we did, that would be our catchphrase, wouldn't it? He saved us. That though we are ill-deserving, though we are wretched, God has worked. All of the credit here, all of the honor, the praise, and the glory, all of it should be heaped upon the Lord God. He saved us. God saved us, the Christian church. But what are we told here about how he's done that or why he's done that? I want to suggest two things. So here's the rule. Don't just get one of the two things. Get both things. What do we learn here about this? First of all, I think we we learn about the actual timing of this saving act. So he has saved us. We learn about the timing of that here. Okay, so what are the words? He saved us. What tense is that? He saved us. That's past tense, isn't it? So Paul's doing something there. Paul is looking back to an occasion, isn't he? God saved us. He has saved us. Paul's looking behind him. To where? What occasion? Look look at it with me. Look at verse 4. What does he say? What does he have in view? When the goodness, do you see the words? When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. When the, the goodness, the loving kindness of God appeared, that's when he saved us. Can, can, I, can I turn this over to you just for a moment? What, what do you think about that? Like, do you think Andy or Paul? Do you think that seems just a little bit vague? When the, the kindness of God appeared, he saved us? Do you, do you think that the event that Paul is looking at it just seems a little bit vague? It still seems a little bit uncertain. If you're thinking that, and I need you to understand this. In the New Testament, the, the uh, relating noun to appeared, that, that only appears in the New Testament in relation to Jesus Christ. Only have the language here, only in relation to Jesus Christ. And in a sense, is that not exactly what you expected me to say? Because what event is Paul talking about? When was it that God himself acted to secure salvation for his people? You know the answer. Here, as Paul consistently does, time and time again, throughout the New Testament... He's looking back to Golgotha, isn't he? Here, Paul looks over his shoulder to the cross of Christ. He saved us. God saved us. And we say, when? He saved us on Calvary Hill. So we have one, the timing. Remember, I said two things. I think also we're instructed about the basis for this divine act. Let me wonder. Let me just digress for a moment. I think it's very, very important now and again uh, for the Christian church, for you and I to consider the uniqueness of the Christian message, the uniqueness. I, I do believe that it's good for our praise. It informs our praise. It's also good for the assurance in the Christian life that now and again, what we do is we just pause to meditate on the fact that the gospel message, this message is unlike anything else in the world. 
good for us. Do you see what I mean? If, if you don't, just consider this for a moment. Consider that in so much of contemporary thought today, the supposed solution to the problems of humanity, the solution is said to be within. Isn't that contemporary thought in a nutshell? All the problems, the problems that you face, the problems we face, supposedly found within. Like, okay, you would say to me, that's true in other religions. Would you say that? Think about the message of other religions. It is, if we just show better, greater devotion, <laughs> if we just do more stuff, more religious activity, then great things will be better for us. That's religious thought. But what about secular thought? I mean, is it not the same as so much secular thought? Think about self-help books, multitude of them. Or what about those right-of-center books kind of written and directed to young men? All these sort of 12-step type things. What's the message? It's if you just take responsibility in your own life, if you just get up a bit earlier, if you just change all of these routines, then things will be better for, for you. Do you see it? Like the answer, the world cries out. The answer is you just look within. All of your problems, you just look within. Now, how is biblical Christianity, how is it different? Would you look at verse 5? Look at it. He, God, saved us. Why? What's the basis? Is it on the grounds of how devoted we are? Is it on the grounds of religious activity? Is it on the grounds that we've taken better responsibility? Look at the words. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of works done by us. Why has he saved us? He has saved us according to his own mercy. Like, do you recognize this morning how amazing that is? Do you recognize how utterly unique that message is? What you're seeing and what should be a relief to you if you see something of the wretchedness of your own heart, what you're seeing is that the basis for this great divine saving act it is not found in us, in who we are or anything that we do, but the basis is found, rooted entirely in God and who he is. Did you hear it? We are seeing that the, the grounds for it, the basis, not in me, not in you, but all rooted in God's heart of tender mercy. Can I tell you what that is? That's good news. If you recognize that, yeah, I'm a sinner, I am chained to, to my lust, I am a person who hates other people and is hated by other people, I can see it, I can see I rebel against God, that's good news. And it's something that should propel the people of God to praise, and it's something that should cause others right now to call out to God that they might be a recipient of that glorious, precious mercy. So we've seen the antecedent precursor for salvation, the state of ourselves. We've seen the author. He saved us. When? At Calvary. On the basis of his mercy. Third A. We see the agent of salvation. The agent of salvation. Um, there's a few students that are back 
restarting or starting for the first time. Um, it's lovely to have you in the life of the church, genuinely. We pray for you. We hope the studies are going well. Some of you uh, are maybe in the situation that I was in uh, as a student. Uh, where, so I would study and I was working part-time. So some of you probably uh, in that same boat, are you? So when I was a student um, in Edinburgh, I was working part-time in a shop. Um, I loved it. I loved that uh, routine, that part. and loved working in the shop except for one day a year. I loved working in the shop. Great time with everyone. Brilliant. Except for the annual stock take. Utter misery, you know. And it's Andy! Go and count how many Tic Tacs are on the shop floor. You know, annual stock take was, was difficult. Given the theological nature of this text of the Bible that we're looking at, maybe we need to do the same. Maybe we need to take stock. Do we? What, we, what have we seen right now? We've seen that in order to propel Christians to act graciously, Paul's reminded Christians of the grace that we have received, isn't he? So we were ill-deserving and wretched, and Paul has reminded us what has God done that he has saved us. He has secured salvation. There is, though, don't you think, that there is a matter, a critical matter, that still remains? Now, now it might seem irreverent, and please understand that it's not, but thus far, is salvation still not over there? Like, is salvation still not apart from us? Do you follow? So, okay, over 2,000 years ago, God secured salvation at the cross of Christ, didn't he? But how is that administered to a person, an individual person? Do you follow, do you follow the issue? So, right now, we've got to the point, Paul's got to the point, yes, salvation is a accomplished. Redemption is accomplished at Calvary. But how is that applied to a person? How is it that that salvation comes to us? That's utterly critical. Well, in verses 5 and 6, and if we could put those up, Paul addresses just that. So he addresses the the means or the application of salvation to a person. And and listen to me when I say this is the third time I say that this is so crucial that I know you'll read it with me. Won't you? Have a look, five and six. So he saved us. God saved us. Move on in the verse to the word by. Do you see the word by? So how is, it, how is this salvation applied to us? Look, he saved us by. Now, get, please get every word. Please come back and get every word. He applies it by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he does what? He poured out on us richly. Did you get every word? You did, right? Can I just point you to one or two things really quickly? First of all, notice that that there, that is also, this too, is a work entirely of God. Isn't that amazing? I hope you're all on the ball And I hope that you've all noticed the Trinitarian flavor of this section of the Bible. Did you all get it? I reckon you did. Do you notice it? 
God the Father is mentioned, Jesus is mentioned, the Holy Spirit now is mentioned. But isn't it striking, this mention of God here? So we are seeing right now that not only was the accomplishment of salvation at Calvary entirely a work of God, we are actually seeing right now that the application of that to the individual's life is also a work of God here attributed to the Holy Spirit. Okay, we've got that. But then, wait, can I point you to what I think? What I think is possibly the most beautiful uh, couplet in all human language. Do you see it? The couplet. What do we have? On one hand, we are told that the Holy Spirit, Christian friend, think about it. We are told that the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Do we know what that means? Tell me, we know what it means. It means in salvation, as God applies salvation to an individual, there is a moment, there's a moment of radical new beginning. You know what we're like, you and I? We talk about coming to Christ a lot of time. We talk about it as this long process. And in a sense, for some of it, it can be, can't it? But what is Scripture telling us here? That for every person that is saved, for every person, there is a point, bang. There is a moment of new creation. There is a moment when we are made new. The moment when we are born again, regenerated. That's on one hand. What's the other side of the couplet? Do you see? We're also told that the Holy Spirit renews us. And and if you didn't know regeneration, you definitely know renewal. Because a lot of you will remember, I told you a while ago about a house that my wife and I bought in Fife and Inverkeithing. Do you remember it? Do you remember what I said about it? First of all, a financial disaster area. There you go, there's one. Second thing I said about it, it was a dump of a house. But we fell in love with it. So what did Catherine and I do? We moved into this house and we began to to do it up. Do you remember? And isn't that what we've got here in Titus chapter 3 of the work of God? Paul is telling you, yes, the Holy Spirit regenerates and makes someone new. But what does the Holy Spirit do at that point? He moves in. (laughs) He moves in and he begins to do us up from the inside, begins to transform us utterly and spiritually. And then the last thing here is to note the description in this phrase. Because if you are paying attention, and if you've noticed that for some reason known only to, to God, I'm working back the way through the, the phrase. If you've noticed that, do you see how the Bible describes this work of the Holy Spirit? I'm asking you. Now all come together. What is this work of the Holy Spirit? Do you see the language? It is a washing. It's a washing. So this rounded work of transformation this applying salvation to the individual's life, it is brought to you this morning in terms of a metaphor of cleansing and a cleansing by God. Do you see how it comes together? Doesn't this bring us back to the start of the service? 
What did we say at the start? We said that we would see here something of baptism portrayed before us and explained to us. So I'm asking you, see, when Lucy was here, my arms earlier on, what was it that God was depicting to you, to every single one of you, regardless of your standing, as I poured out the biblical language for a mode of application, as I poured out water upon her head, what was God showing you? But showing you the availability of new life in Him. So if you're not a Christian, do, do you see what God is saying to you, communicating you in word and sacrament? That this can be yours. This salvation, even today, this new life can be yours. You can have today union with Jesus Christ. But you can have this. You can be transformed utterly. You can be cleansed eternally if you just come to Christ in repentance and faith. No wonder, as St. Peter's, we delight in the sacrament. No wonder, as a church, we rejoice in Christian baptism. And then a close, most briefly of all, Fourth A, the aim of salvation. The aim of salvation. Because I think as we close, as we bring it all into, to an end, we do have to ask, don't you think, what is God's purpose here with us? Like ultimately, if you look at the end of all of this, God has done a lot. What is his ultimate aim with the person here? What does he do? What's the ultimate purpose of all of this? I wonder what you would say to that. What is God's ultimate purpose with you, Christian friends? Would you say it's just to save some from condemnation and, and hell? Is that the ultimate goal of it all? Look at it, verse 7. If we could put verse 7. Like, do, do you notice that there is a purpose clause right at the beginning? So all that we've talked about, and there's a lot of theological terminology today, lots of it, all of it, so that, so that, purpose clause, what does he say? So that being justified by grace. So already you being declared righteous, being already declared forgiven so that we might become heirs. Heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. I'm going to ask you not to rush ahead. So often when we hear that terminology of an heir, you know what we're like? Probably an indication of our, our greed. We hear air and we think, what's the inheritance? What's the inheritance? But for a moment, please just think about the status. You in Christ, you are an heir. What does this mean? This means that in the salvation, ultimate purpose of salvation was God bringing you into his very own family to become an heir an heir of his, his own family. Do you know that years ago, if you were to go to churches in the west and the north of the highlands of Scotland, and if you were a visitor to those churches, I'm allowed to say this as a Scottish Highlander, but if you were a visitor, you would be asked regularly on the way out of that church, and who are your people? 
who are your people? You would be asked, who do you belong to? And you know what it was. It was a way of just determining who your forefathers were, your ancestors were, who was, you know, did you have any ties to this particular part of the world or are you not worthy? Is that though, isn't it? Who are your people? Who, who are you? Who, who's your clan? Who do you belong to? But don't you see it, Christian friend? As you file out of this church later on, if I was to ask you the same question, who are you people? Who do you belong to? What's the ultimate answer to that? You can say, though, there's no merit in me, though I am totally unworthy, I belong to God. I'm his kin. I'm part of his family, all by grace. He's made me an heir, an heir of this everlasting life, an heir to be with him, his family, forever and evermore. So I, so I end this with two questions. One first to you, if you're a Christian, in light of all that Paul has shown you about the nature of your salvation, will you not, Christian friend, now go out into the world and engage in a loving way with your unbelieving neighbors and friends? You can remember, can't you? That's his whole point. That's Paul's whole motivation. Will we not respond? Are you not in light of the grace that God has shown you? You're not filled with a desire. Go out. Show grace to unbelievers. Tell them. Tell them of this glorious salvation that God gives to you. And then the second question to you, if you are not a Christian, in light of all of this, will you not now believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? Will you not? You think about what God has done to you in your life right now if you're not a Christian. So in God's mercy, God, all the stuff you've got going on in your life, today God has brought you in a church. You maybe never thought you would be in a church. You may be hating the fact that you, you, you were meant to come to a church. But in God's mercy, he's taken you into this church. What has he done today? God in his word has unpacked something of a salvation and transformation that is available to you. And more than that, God has even in this baptism shown you a picture of it. He's given you this visual illustration of this cleansing that you can have in Jesus Christ. What mercy from God. How are you going to respond? In unbelief? Surely you respond by bowing to the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to him in repentance and faith. It is the case, Christian friends, isn't it? That this morning we praise God for baptism, don't we? We praise him for that sacrament. But more than that, don't we praise God for what this baptism points us to? There's cleansing. There's cleansing. There is transformation. There is new life. And it is all available, only available in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.